Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Oh, hi. Good day. I hope everyone is doing fine today. We are going to be in Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Uh, That's Actually, I think we're only going to be through 11 based on uh, how far I was able to get uh, with the study this week. And, uh, and you'd be like, oh, that's not a lot. Well, there's a lot of content in uh, verses 1 through 11. And we'll be, we'll be covering uh, that today. And, and to be honest, depending on how this goes, we may not even be able to do all 11 verses today because of the depth of information that is uh, that is provided uh, based on the research I've done. I, I apologize for the earlier technical difficulties, but I think we're in a good place here. Uh, last week, we wrapped up chapter one, uh, which included, of course, the, the introduction to the letter from Paul. Uh, it had a prayer to the people in Philippi. Uh, some, most times when you read a epistle from Paul, it did not have a letter. Uh, I'm sorry, it didn't have a prayer specific to that group. It talked about praying for other groups or even praying for that group he's writing to, but not to have a specific prayer into it. So uh, we also got a little bit of information about the trials, of course, that Paul is facing. Uh, but it, the idea that I think we really need to hold on to and that will continue on into uh, chapter two is the modeling uh, of Paul and, of course, Paul modeling Jesus and to the Philippian church to be able to show them how it is to live as a person of faith even in a world that is dangerous to the faith uh, that they believed in. Uh, As we enter chapter 2, we see Paul continuing uh, with the concern that he heard about from Epaphroditus uh, related to the uh, self-centered attitudes that have creeped into the church. He'll reference those as a selfish ambition and vain conceit, depending on your translation. Uh, Paul will point out later uh, in the verses of this chapter of how Christ was the the ultimate model and example of what it was to live without these self-centered attitudes or selfish ambition and vain conceit. He is the exemplar of what it is to live in that way, to see how Jesus would humble himself uh, for the sake of the kingdom and how they should follow this model. And we'll, we'll talk a lot more in depth about the humbling of Jesus and even would say uh, the humbling of God to come down in the form of man uh, to do this. Uh, as we'll see that there is a, uh, there's a lot of posturing and bickering within the church that is causing problems there. Uh, why, of course, this is why Paul sends this letter back with Epaphroditus. Uh, Timothy was also probably in tow as they went. And of course, Paul was not, at least we don't think he was able ever to return, but he was hoping that he could return uh, as well. So it was his concern that there is internal division that was not reflecting well upon the church, which we know from other letters as well as from Revelation that that was hurting the witness of the church. Uh, so the idea here, of course, what it is to be, uh, to be like Christ and to follow Christ as the model of what it is and to live in a community of unity uh, without the selfish ambition and to, to love one another. So the title of this is to, to be obedient Uh, to the will of God, and to love one another, even if you don't really like the other person. So verses, uh, we'll start with verses 1 through 4, and 
and they go from there. I'm not, and I'm only going to read verses 1 through 4 at this point because it, it may seem like there's some repetition in here, and it may feel like it's a little it's, it's a little dense. If you really read it, it's a little dense. Uh, and, and the reason, I, don't know, I think that's part of that is, of course, Paul's style. And part of that is he's trying to get a lot of information uh, to these people to a way that they can understand it and fully uh, work with it. Uh, and it's also part of it is that it's translated from an ancient Greek language uh, to, uh, to what we know as English today. And so that's part of it as well. So uh, I know that is like that with the, a lot of the Bible. But the other part about that we always like to talk about here is that words matter. And the words that Paul writes here certainly do matter. And we need to pay attention to them to make sure that we don't get off track or lose sight of what he is trying to communicate uh, to the church there in Philippi. Uh, so verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 2. <clears throat> Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any cons- consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, you have to think that's how he's writing it, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the Spirit, intent on purpose. Uh, the same mind or mindset is a key part of what Paul is trying to communicate through this entire letter. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I, I would say that what Paul is doing right there, he is actually describing what it is to live within the, the kingdom of God. Uh, what it is to live in heaven, a heavenly space, is that idea of loving one another and to, uh, to be humble and to live a life of humility to where you put others ahead of you and everyone is doing that uh, out of their own love for one another and not living out of selfish ambition. So therefore, of course, we see therefore, uh, unless you're reading from the NIV and then he doesn't have therefore, but therefore we have nonetheless, uh, which points back to, of course, to the previous section as, as therefores do. And it is, of course, from verses 27 through 30 is what we're looking at. And so they are to stand in opposition of the dangers uh, that come towards them. That is, for the most part, hindering uh, their gospel uh, witness. It is hindering uh, what that other people are like, well, I don't want to be a part of this group because all they do is bicker and infight. And that is what, of course, we shouldn't do. And if fortunately churches today don't bicker or have fighting within the church. So maybe this isn't as relevant to us. Or maybe it is, because we do. We do do that, and it is, it is hindering our, our witness. Um, <clears throat> you'll notice here that Paul mentions suffering, and suffering ties with rejoicing or joy. And the two, uh, the two are counterpoints that he uses uh, in this letter as well as others. And so we know Paul is suffering there in Rome most likely, and he's suffering most likely in chains. And he's suffering most likely with a prisoner or not with a guard connected to him regularly, knowing that he doesn't know what his fate is, but knowing that most likely it'll be bad, versus rejoicing in the suffering which he's doing. He has a joy that only God can bring. <clears throat> and so as we go ahead and just keep going here, as we look uh, through uh, from verse 1 into verse 2, and we'll, we'll come back to verse 1 again here in a second, but I want to just kind of give you a quick overview, is this, is for this this whole idea of what he's trying to communicate to happen, uh, they need to all be on the same page, uh, especially when they are facing external opposition. So it wasn't just internal infighting that was happening. It was also uh, external opposition. And we discussed that a little bit last week. And what was happening was is that when you became a believer of Christ in this community, 
many times they would lose their way of life. They would be possibly uh, ostracized from their families. Uh, they would be threatened. Uh, they'd be kicked out of the community. Uh, some would even be killed. And so it's, it's significant what they're trying to do. And so that's that suffering that Paul refers to. And then the rejoicing in that suffering, knowing that it is worth, worth the suffering for what you ultimately get with Christ. <clears throat> As we go into verse 1, let's just jump back briefly here into verse 1. Uh, it, it seems that Paul is focusing on Christ here and how Paul and the church are in the same situation by being in Christ. Uh, we can gather from this that Christ's comfort that we see here is, is shared by Paul and the church. So it's just not Paul, this, this great uh, leader, this great Christian, the apostle. Uh, it, it's not just about him. Uh, it's about the people who are also believers, the people of the church of Philippi that he's specifically writing to. It's about us today. We're, we're all within Christ's comfort if we believe. It, it continues with Paul showing how the Philippian church has experienced God's love and they have been part of the participation in the work of the Spirit. Uh, these seems to be shared experiences between Paul and the church. When we get to the, the uh, phrase here of uh, complete my joy, it seems that Paul is now focused more on his relationship uh, with himself and the, then the church it is one of those grammatical changes that are hard to really catch if you're not looking too closely. So he was talking about the relationship with Christ, his relationship with Christ and the church's relationship with Christ. And then he transitions to his relationship with the church and hoping that the church can live as they are called to live. And when that he would rejoice if they continue to live in that way. So we can dig a little bit deeper into the clauses because I know that's what you uh, like to do. Uh, if there's any encouragement, comfort in Christ, this points to the idea of uh, the, if, if there's suffering in Christ, there will also be rejoicing in Christ. So going, that is that counterpoint that I was referring to earlier. Uh, Christ has comforted and will continue to comfort those who follow him. Christ's comfort is not just a one-time thing, but it is ongoing. <clears throat> Uh, if there's any comfort from love, the idea of comfort and struggle continues. By whom does the love come? Is a question that we could look at. And this could be part of a, a Trinitarian structure that Paul seems to be putting together here in his letters where he combines the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> which is, like I said, pretty typical of a uh, Pauline epistle. Uh, this is based on, we, we base this idea on the clause falling between a mention of Christ and the Spirit. So it's like putting together contextual clues, grammatical clues to see what Paul is trying to communicate here. And from that we can see that's what that is. And it also ties to Paul keeping uh, with his Old Testament traditions. Remember he was a Jewish scholar. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. So he very much knew Old Testament tradition, though he is speaking in a New Testament world. And the idea of love coming from God, which is what God is. God is love. They are to love one another. And so you see that as we continue on. Uh, one other clause we want to picture here is uh, any participation in the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit here is the one who unifies and will keep the church unified. The, the Spirit is the one who allows them to, 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 to be transformed in their faith, to grow in their faith, and to, to speak to God. And we'll talk more about that in, in verse 7 or 2. Uh, when, 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 they, when they bow their knee and profess that, that God is the God of gods, that is the Holy Spirit working through them. And so God's love is not only, is, as Jesus promised, is spread through the power of the Holy Spirit. They're unified through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And if it is the same spirit, which we believe it to be, this unify, unification continues. Uh, thus, they are not only unified. Uh, sometimes we like to think that maybe it's our small group that we're unified with, but it's, you're unified with Paul, and they're unified with all believers all over the world. And in this, knowing this, and this is why, uh, like, the common book of prayer is so important, or knowing that, uh, and the reason I say it's important is because you, you have this unity with people who you know are praying the same prayers that day, who are reading the same scripture that day, and the Spirit is flowing and through that. That's, so practices like that are so good because of that, that idea of being able to be in unity. And with this unity, we can rejoice, even though maybe in our individual circumstances or even in larger circumstances, group circumstances, we suffer. <clears throat> and then as we continue to one more clause here, there is uh, affection and compassion or any affection and compassion. Uh, based on what we know from some of Paul's letters, such as Colossians uh, 3.12, this seems to be about uh, urging believers about what it is to live in a healthy community. It is a deep level of love and affection and sympathy to affect the, the bowels of mercy. That is a pretty intense phrase uh, that he is using there when he says bowels of mercy. So we're again, what we're talking about is a deep, deep love uh, for one another. And this is based on their origins in God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. Again, going back to the Trinitarian viewpoint. He moves forward here into uh, verse 2, uh, which like I said, we introduced briefly uh, just above, but let's continue on with this. Initially, uh, this verse may seem a bit self-serving based on how Paul's looking uh, for his joy to be complete. But if we look at the theme of this entire letter and its relationship to the Philippian church, we can see that this is now, uh, that's not what he is hoping for. Uh, this is about Paul being a pastor. He's being a shepherd, uh, a shepherd and having a pastoral heart uh, for the people of the church. He is deeply connected with the well-being of the church and his utmost concern for their unity, their health, their spiritual health, and them to continue to be able to spread the gospel. He's also connected with them with their, their perseverance and how it is important uh, to them as a community, but also for the gospel itself to continue to, to spread. Uh, the connection here, again, is about what Paul is wanting them to experience, the eschatological joy uh, and to do this, they must rely on the Spirit and stand firm in the Spirit. And this pushes, he'll reference this again later on in this, ch in this chapter in verse 11. Uh, the use of the word complete or fulfill, uh, pleposate, just because you're curious, uh, is what it is in Greek. Uh, of course, it means to fulfill or to fill full, to bring something to completion, to complete the work that is already at work. So the gospel is already at work. Let's move the gospel forward. Let's get to that, you know, let's all the world to know what the gospel is and to, to be part of it and to embrace it and to know the, understand the love that comes from the spreading of the gospel. So in order for them to do this, they need to, they need to act together. They need to stop bickering and fighting and being divisive. Uh, there must be a mutual love between them. If they can't love each other there within the church, it'll be nearly impossible for them to love people who are not believers outside the church, especially those who are beating up on them and oppressing them. As I said before, the, the use of mind or the mindset or uh, competing or com continuing with the same mind is, is Paul speaking of them having the same values and a certain way of looking at things. This isn't, this isn't groupthink. 
this point or having the same opinions. It is about having the same mindset as the Lord, as Christ, not as, not as we typically sometimes will have in our church groups or whole churches of this is the way it is and this is the only way it is and I am very inflexible and we mean to anyone who doesn't agree with me. No, this is having the mindset of God and when the mind, you have the mindset of God, you have a mindset of love for other people. Uh, the same love is seemingly the same love that God has showed them. They've experienced God's love and now it is for them to, to take that love and to show it to others. <clears throat> uh, the idea of united in spirit is about unity, to, to live in harmony. Uh, the word has been translated as together as one person. And you could even take about Paul, how he describes in other letters about how the, the, the body of Christ and how they're all moving together and moving. And, you know, you have the foot and the hand and the eye and the, and the arm and the ear all moving together in the same way. So this idea of united in spirit is one body moving forward. Uh, some would say this probably reports to the, uh, the Shema, uh, where the idea of to love with their whole heart, their whole being, uh, in, in, that in that regard. <clears throat> Let's go on to uh, verse 3. Uh, this verse here actually helps uh, provide a little bit more uh, concrete idea of what Paul is writing about. Uh, coming from the previous verse. He first references chapter 1, verse 17, regarding rivalry and selfish ambition. Uh, those who are preaching in the Roman community uh, out of envy, if you remember that from, from last time we met, uh, uh, they're out of the envy of others. There's kind of more of a self-fulfilling reason they were uh, teaching. He's contrasting this, of course, uh, with those who taught with selfish ambition, uh, with, with those who taught with the love of Christ, those who taught... Uh, selflessly. I think I said with selfish ambition. I meant without selfish ambition, but that's what he's referring to. He's contrasting those who were, they were they're teaching the gospel, but it was for their own good and their own selfish ambition versus those who teach Christ selflessly. Uh, selfish ambition, as we can see here, because it's brought up multiple times, is one of the major issues around human fallenness, not just for this church, but for all churches, uh, where self-interest is at the expense of other people, uh, their values, and if that is true, then their values are against the values of God. Uh, vain conceit is the next item uh, that comes here, or I think, depending on your translation, maybe even empty conceit. Think of it as those who think highly of themselves, but really have no cause to do so. It's like a, an empty vessel. And it's not about those who might have reason to be in glory, uh, but for those who have not done anything for any level of glory. They, they've not even, they haven't, they haven't participated in the gospel community they have not committed they have not participated in the church they kind of just think hey it's me it's all good all glory to me and that's that's not true uh, with these words some would argue that it is Paul's hope uh, that Philippi uh, avoid the problems that uh, he had already noticed and brought up in Corinth and Galatia uh, they've already gone down this road of self-aggrandizement uh, and it is hoped that the church in Philippi will not do the same thing. Uh, those other churches, Corinth, Corinth and Galatia, are already, they were founded, my understanding, ahead of the church in Philippi. They're already experiencing things, hoping to learn from those lessons, and hopefully we can move forward from there. What Paul is doing here is contrasting the previous verse of being of the same mind to that of what it is to not live in the same mind of Christ. Christ lived and died with humility, and that is the opposite of what Paul's friends in Philippi were doing 
at the time that he was writing this letter. <coughs> we'll note here and as well as other places uh, that as well as other places in this letter as well as just other letters in general by Paul uh, that humility is a virtue celebrated by the church. While in Rome it was looked on as a shortcoming or weakness in the church humility was actually a virtue and it should be a virtue till today even though many people will still look at humility as being weak it is not humility is not weak looking out and taking care of others before yourselves yourself is not a weakness it is a virtue it is a way of to live and to live in a community be it within people within your church community or people outside of your church community uh, with that said uh, Paul is using the Old Testament version of the word, which means lowliness or creatureliness. This is the Old Testament version of humility, where the truly humble rest all they are and all they have on God, rather than trusting in their own strength, schemes, or activity. So it's even more uh, severe than how we are translating it from the, the New Testament or even our time period of humility. But this is a lowliness or creatureliness where we everything has been given up. All of all that we are and all that we uh, believe and all that we ex how we exist is, uh, is is reliant on on God. Uh, the idea of humility is again this the idea that he's trying to bring with this is with humility you can have unity and to look on the concerns of others and not our own and the way to do that is through true humility which is not self focused <clears throat> and again. This is modeling the life of Jesus, to have the love for one another, to remember that the first come last and the last first. I think Jesus said that. Maybe if we read the Gospels, the next time you do, you'll, 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 you'll see that reference that, that Jesus makes. And it is true. And Jesus wasn't just saying that uh, to, to give the Pharisees a hard time. He was saying that to say, no, this is actually how you live. And this is what is expected of those who follow me, where the last become first and the first become last. Uh, we need to make a, a, a point here about the idea of more important. Uh, this is not about putting someone on a pedestal, as we like to sometimes do. This is about caring for that person and putting their needs ahead of their own. <clears throat> uh, where did that, that right there says, regard one another as more important than yourself. Some people have taken that as pedestals. Sometimes as we put pastors and preachers and other people of authority on a pedestal, that's not all what he is talking about here. So please don't uh, do that. <clears throat> uh, verse 4 and then after we're done with verse 4 we'll read the rest of this uh, section that we're going through today uh, so verse 4 Paul continues and we see that considering the needs of others over our own is a genuine way uh, of a Christian or Christ follower to live uh, Galatians 6 2 uh, brings us in perspective when Paul writes feel the full law of Christ bearing each other's burden so he just uh, continues to bring that home of fulfilling the needs of others into living a life of humility. Uh, we need some discussion on community and individuals. As modern Western people, we focus a lot of times on the individual and our own, uh, you know, our, our own stamp or ticket into heaven uh, and our own salvation. And the and the community typically is secondary. We we really like to kind of self-focus, which is not at all how uh, people back then lived. They it was very much a community because people had to rely on each other for so many things that we typically can either pay for ourselves or handle ourselves based on how the economy, the world, uh, contextually in which they lived, 
uh, and within their culture, there is a much more reliant on community. So sometimes when we read about community and talk about community, it's a little bit foreign to us, especially when you talk about community covenants and that sort of thing. Uh, in the Old, Old Testament, times of the Old Testament, the community was, was first, as in an entire community or household could be brought into the community or born into the covenant. And uh, in, in the first century, this started to change to where uh, when we, th through salvation, at least the idea of salvation, where we enter into salvation uh, one at a time versus, the, you know, like instead of all of Abraham's family coming into the covenant of salvation, it is one person at a time, which is, which is fine for that time period that was happening now where it started becoming as one person making that decision. But at the same time, that doesn't remove the community from the conversation. <clears throat> Continuing on regarding the focus on the interest of others, Paul is, Paul is helping them get beyond the grumbling and the bickering that he's eroding their witness to those not yet in the Christian community. Again, we are a witness. Even though we don't think maybe sometimes people are listening, they truly are, and they're seeing how we're living. <clears throat> All right, let's go to... Let's, I'm going to go ahead and read the rest. I'm going to do verses 5 through 11. And um, anyway, we'll go. Okay. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This gets very interesting at this point. But it's already interesting, but it's just deeper. But it emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, slave, servant, depending on your translation, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance, or human, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So that's that modeling of humility, extreme humility. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, or above every name. We always add other, above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul again shows the example of Christ. He brings the reader back uh, to the mindset that he had mentioned earlier on. Paul's very good at bringing it all back around, uh, landing the plane, sometimes we like to say. And, and from there, he brings in one of the most researched and exalted pieces of Scripture written, uh, and for believers to model their lives after Christ. Some have thought that this example of emulating Christ was a poem or even a hymn created by Paul that he added to this. It is up to debate and it probably always will be. Uh, with that said, what he's saying here is poetic in nature, it, it, but at the same time, it is, it is a narrative of the existence of Christ. From, this, from his time with God, okay, so his being, using the proper from Christ, Jesus, however you want to say it, Jesus' time with God to his time on earth to his return to God. Paul is trying to explain that entire process. We see the whole process as we go through here of, of Christ always existing with God, part of God. He came down to earth. He died on the cross. He was resurrected. He ascended into heaven. That's constant. That's something that Paul is always bringing in because it's key, especially the, uh, the, the resurrection and the, the extension. So it's, it's a bit poetic of what he's trying to communicate here. And this is the argument that I believe, as believers, we rest on. Without getting deep into the, the grammatical structure of what's going on here, 
of this either hymn, poem, narrative, whatever you want to refer to it as, uh, we can provide a little bit of insight. And uh, there's, as you know, volumes of all written about all these verses, but we're going to focus on a few key points and, and we'll go on from there. We, we see how Christ's mindset at first was at first expressed itself as uh, the, the second as, uh, as we see her as man. Uh, we see how Christ existed or the mode of existence followed by what Christ did in each of these modes. So as God, he did this. As man, he did that. And so we'll see, we'll get, dig a little bit deeper into that here in a second. The second part, which is verses 9 through 11, where it is a bit less poetic and more focused on humility, humility or probably better said the humiliation of Christ and how through this humiliation Christ was exalted on high or exalted into glory or exalted in glory. Uh, through humility he was raised up. Th the same could be said for the Philippians following along. Uh, this confession as Christ is Lord is contrasting the common viewpoint of that time where Nero thought he was the ultimate Lord and through the imperial cult would expect people to worship him as the ultimate Lord. Uh, so it's quite a political statement that, that Paul is making here, especially in a province of Rome or in Rome itself, uh, that would say, hey, oh, wait, 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 Nero's not Lord. This, Christ the Lord, Jesus Christ the Lord is the Lord. Uh, and so to be able to be in that city uh, where you had a very much a, 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 a imperial cult presence, where you had very much a Roman army presence, to be able to say that, uh, to deny the divinity as the ultimate God of the emperor was quite uh, controversial for Paul to say that. And so you can kind of wonder, hey, why they had some issues there uh, whenever they said, hey, that's what I profess. I don't profess Nero. I profess God. <laughs> so some problems, as you can see. Uh, verse 5, uh, now that we've given you a little bit of the summary, uh, this is the transition from the first four verses to the final verses of this section, of course, chapter 6, uh, verses 6 through 11. He uses this here to point back to what he just read. So based on this, your attitude should be like that of Christ. Or you should, based on this, you should model what Christ was or who Christ is. That has how you should live your life. The use of uh, yourselves points not only to the individuals, but to the community as a whole. Remember, this is very much a community letter, a letter to a community. Within the community, not just on your own develop the attitude of humility and selfishness. So the, the community itself. So as an individual you can have an attitude of selfishness and humility, but the whole community needs to be like that. So you can be like that on your own, but when you get together, you can't be arrogant and you know look down on people and all that sort of thing and be about self-aggrandizement. But uh, you actually are live hum humble and lives of humility and selflessness as a group as well, or as community. Remember the top being, uh, consider the needs of others of course, before your own. Again, that's a final act of, not a final act, but a ultimate act of humility. Uh, we can reflect upon Romans 15, uh, verses 5 through 8, where they are to live in harmony with each other. To that, with one voice, they might glorify God. Again, one voice being the community, the church community, glorifying God. All being of the same mindset, the same mind, worshiping God. Uh, verse 6, uh, the... The who here is Christ. Uh, the who, who uh, here is, of course, Christ, who picked the mind of one who is selfless and not selfish. This is a reminder that everything Christ did in bringing salvation was the opposite of selfish ambition in verse 3. So a counterpoint to selfish ambition was the life of Christ. Uh, <clears throat> the idea behind the idea of 
uh, form of God or AKA, AKA the pre-existent one. So one that has already always existed. Some would, some would, would and do argue that the form of God is too similar to how uh, Adam was uh, the image of God. You can take that. Uh, they look at this from the Christ incarnation perspective. Uh, many others come from the point that Paul was, what Paul is saying is not about incarnation, but about God always existing, uh, <clears throat> as in God before the existence of what we know as time, the God of the past, the God of the present, and the God of the future. So we need to look at the Greek word here that he, they're using for form is morph or morphe, depending on, I guess, how you want to say it. Uh, the, I know there is a correct way, and my apologies. Uh, M-O-R-P-H-E is the word that's being used here. Uh, and Paul is trying to explain how Jesus transitioned uh, from heaven to earth whenever he uses the use the word uh, Greek, of course, it's morph, a, a new form. He, so he uses this idea, a, a new form was created, or not form. Uh, yeah, it, what is a new form from being God to being human is a new form. But what he's doing here, I guess you could say, is he, 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 helps, use a, he helps us by using a metaphor to help explain this in the following verses to show Christ's humanity, though still God, how he... Christ's humanity as a servant or a slave or a bondservant. Uh, using this language helps us better understand of the transition of the form that he took from God to human and now as a servant human, as or as a slave uh, to humans or servant to humans, to man, humankind. So to the Philippians, what they saw was that the true human was resurrected and ascended into heaven. That's Christ, the true human. But this Christ had also known a prior experience as what we know to as the Old Testament God or Yahweh. And keep Yahweh in mind because that's important as we develop this idea. Not, not that he was like God, but not really like God. But he was characterized by what was essentially to being God. In this verse, Paul is, Paul is reinforcing his view of the crucifixion. That it was God's true character. A lavish expression of love. It was being fully manifested with Jesus Christ, the Christ, on the cross. And so Paul is trying to show that Jesus, being God, is showing God's ultimate love for his creation. <laughs> and of course, this keeps us going forward within the idea of the same mindset, and that is the mindset of Jesus. Jesus being equal with God was not something he took advantage of to further his own desire, as our friend Adam did, which we get to here in just a second, but to further the desire of God, humility and sacrifice to others. Like I said, some have compared this to the idea of the Adam-Christ theme, which is, gets tossed around a lot, uh, where when Adam being the image of God, which that's brought up, uh, considered it to be equality to seize. Christ, on the other hand, did not seize it. Uh, he, he did not try to seize it. Adam tried to become like God, and Christ became as man, which is just kind of giving us an analogy of how this could all play out, or how it all does play out. Christ didn't try to seize power, or authority, or the idea of God. Adam did. And so let's, we can kind of look at that based on going back to our, our fun creation story in the first couple chapters of Genesis. Moving right along, verse 7 he emptied himself out. Uh, Paul provides us with, again, another metaphor. Paul did not empty himself of anything. Uh, he poured himself out. He emptied himself out of his significance and became a servant to man. So he's not like 
let's just continue on. The King James would read, and I think this is, uh, is easier for us to understand, at least for, easier for me to understand what Paul's trying to say, is that he said in King James, he made himself of no reputation. <coughs> he made him who was once first, always will be first, now last. And so he's continuing that idea. Before and on the cross, he was never not God, telling us he did not exchange him being God to being human as he took on the form of being a slave, always God through this. The form of a slave was an all-in decision that was made. Uh, the essential quality of being a slave, this is what Paul believes is the most beautiful manifestation of love, the, the lowest of low, the last of the last. By using the word slave, servant, bond servant, uh, doulos is the word in Greek, uh, defines how God entered the word world, not as Lord. Lord also, like I said, Yahweh in the Old Testament, they interchange that sometimes, but as a slave, like I said, doulos, a person with no advantages, rights, or privileges. He was a servant to all of humankind, and this seems to be pointing back to verses 3 and 4. The idea that we see here again in verse 7 of human form or likeness uh, continues uh, with Paul's view that God came down as a human. He continued to be divine, with his, which is consistent with the belief of the rest of the church at that time that God, though, though Christ was here on earth, he was still divine, <clears throat> fully human, fully God. So he was in human flesh, but he did, not take, he did not sin like those of us in human flesh. So he was the same, but yet not the same. Why those two? So he, fully, so he was able to fully identify with us as what it was to live as human, while at the same time he was not human only. This phrase from Paul uh, helps make this clear. Christ was God living out a truly human life. Uh, verse 8, as we're moving right along here in a steady clip. Uh, so verse 8, being found in appearance as a man or human. Uh, Paul's thought continues regarding, again, the word morphe, uh, or in the form of man. Uh, so recall that in the form of God, he emptied himself in the form of a human being. He humbled himself. Remember the idea of the form of God is telling us that he was equal with God. Okay? The humbling of himself points back to verse 3 with a reference to in lowliness in mind. Paul's, Paul uses obedient here to make a point out to the, to the Philippians, to the Philippian church. Paul does not regularly use obedience to describe Christ's death on the cross, but he is using it to call the Philippians into obedience. Again, reference that appeal back in verses 4 through 7. But here we see Paul saying, <clears throat> becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Again, it's not typical for Paul to say that, but Paul is making a point here of what it is for us to be obedient. There will be suffering, there will be humility as we are followers of Christ, as we are of the same mind as Christ. Another way to take the obedience just a little bit further, as Jesus was obedient to the divine will of God, when we pray, your will be done on earth as in heaven, same sort of idea, so should the people of the church, not like those who act in human wisdom, but to act on the will of God, those who act from what they know of the will of God. Some see the last part of this phrase as death of a cross as something that was added later. Uh, this is based on how it does not fit rhetorically uh, with the rest of the message. Others look at it as Paul trying to make a point regarding death as it is repeated here back to back. It is framing the narrative of God fully divine on 
the cross. I, I, I'd like to kind of stick with that one. I don't think it was added on later on. So the one who in the morph of God or the form of God showed God's essence through this self-sacrifice, fully showing the love of God. Please remember that our friends in Philippi would not look at the cross as a faith symbol. Uh, today we like to look at the cross as uh, as, as a faith symbol. As we look at it as like, oh, the cross, oh, my heart, my heart warms because it's a cross and it reminds me of my, my faith. Uh, it, it was scandalous. It was scandalous, the cross. To die on a cross was scandalous, especially that a God, their God, would die on a cross in such a way was, was a scandal. It showed that the, their God was weak. It's a divine weakness. So obviously this imperial God, Nero, must be stronger if he's not going to die on a cross, but our God dies on a cross. So because so, the cross is for thieves and insurrectionists, bad people. And, but their God died on this cross. But the good news, of course, that he was resurrected. But again, think about it. And their mindset, that is not good. It is, it is not like, yeah, God died on the cross. Whew. It is more like, oh, holy cow, what just happened? This is not a good thing. Uh, and so it's, it's again, got to think from their, their point of view and what Paul was writing to you at that time. <clears throat> All right, verses 9 through 11. Uh, God has God has exalted Himself as Lord, uh, Lord of all. Notice here, Paul does not continue the process from death on the cross to resurrection and ascension. It seems his point is not to explain that, as they already know that they already know that He died on the cross, He resurrected, and He ascended into heaven. That's that that is given written into here into this letter. So He focuses not on that at this point. We're still focusing. Uh, on, on, on the humility of Christ for what he did and through that humility how he was exalted. Uh, in verse 9, Paul seems to uh, carry the theme through the mighty uh, God in human form being exalted through his obedience. If he is already God, he is not being awarded here as a higher position uh, through his obedience. It is more about being exalted to the highest possible degree. Uh, and we can compare this to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. We are more than conquerors through Christ when that was written. This does not give them a title above, say, conquerors, but instead highlights the degree of what they have accomplished through Christ. Glory. Christ's glory accomplished through that. So what does Paul try to show with the, the name that is above every name? Uh, we have his earth, we, So we have two different names. We have his earthly name, Jesus. And we have his heavenly name, Lord, which some would argue is more of a title than a name. But let me, let me finish this thought and we, we can work through that. Paul's not saying that Jesus is now given the name of Jesus, but the name of Jesus has now been exalted. So the name of Jesus now has exalted significance. Jesus is the name, while Lord is, like I said, is probably more of a title. And that's probably how they would have looked at it, because you can see other times in scriptures where Lord is used as a title. And that's probably what happened. Uh, many of the times along the way. Others would say that the, the use of the Lord, because we like to contrast things, and I don't like to just give one point many times, uh, would say that the use of the Lord would put him up at the level of Yahweh. And let me explain this, because this comes from Isaiah 45. Uh, so the idea of if, it's, if he's at the level of Yahweh, so the Lord is Christ Jesus. So Lord Yahweh, like I've said, has been interchangeable in the Old Testament. Now we have Lord Jesus Christ, which puts him at the same level as God, uh, we can look, like I said, at, at uh, Isaiah 45, 23, where Yahweh the Lord says before, before every knee, must, knee shall bow and tongue confess, which is we're about to see in verse 11, 
so the, the Lord or Yahweh is one where all obedience uh, should be given, knowing that Yahweh in Greek is the Lord. Now a name that has been given to Jesus. Again, we'll do a little bit more of this in verse 10. Again, culturally, as I mentioned before, the, the use of Lord in a Roman providence would be a bit dangerous based on being Caesar Nero at the time being referred to as Lord. Paul is speaking out against those who are causing the suffering of the church. So Paul makes political statements in his letters to those following along that no, though Nero is saying that he is Lord or Caesar is saying that he is Lord, no, this is, this is one. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Uh, let's jump into verse 10. Uh, Paul here is indirectly walking through the life of God from uh, the life. I use air quotes or real quotes if you see it in writing, but air quotes here. Uh, from the time of creation through Jesus and his time on earth, the cross, resurrection, and extension. He's very good at this. <clears throat> from here he goes to the eschatological future uh, where all of the creation will worship God. With every knee bowing, the whole creation should show reverence to the Lord is what he's pointing to here. The bowing of the knee is, of course, a sign of respect uh, to one's authority, but also the posture of prayer and homage to one of authority. This again ties back to chapter uh, to Isaiah chapter 45 or to Isaiah 45, 18 through 24, when God declares, when where God declares as Yahweh, as Yahweh, he's declaring, which we have established is also Greek for the Lord. Recall in Isaiah, God declares to be God alone. Overall, he has created, he is God over all, all of creation, all the gods, all the nations. Remember, they did believe in, they're not these believers at this point, though they did have a history of believing in, in multiple gods, especially with Nero being there saying that he was a god. So the point here is of all gods and all nations. So this is not us coming and saying now we're, uh, polytheistic in, in our faith, or they were either, but it's they were monotheistic, but they lived in a polytheistic culture, so that point is being made here. Uh, Christ is now ascended to heaven, and with that, the right of reverence now points to Jesus. Now all shall bow to Jesus the Lord. It is not about salvation at this time, but all people who are believers and those who are not bowing to the sovereign Lord, to the sovereign authority, leader. The, the reference to earth and under the earth is a continuation of Isaiah. All of creation will bow to the authority of the Lord. Not just people, but everything, including angels, demons, and related heavenly beings, those who are alive and those who are dead. Not heavenly beings, I'm not sure how they live and die, but humans, dead and alive, will all turn and worship the Lord. All right. Verse 11. I didn't think we'd do this, but we will. We're going to push on. We're going to make it through. So one more verse. Paul's mention of the confession by all builds upon the bowing of the knee. So now we're at the knee bowing time. The, the tongue, the, there's, we've, we've done the knee bowing. We're now going to do the tongue confessing. Sorry. We know from some of Paul's other letters that this confession is what separates the believers from the non-believers. He believes, as we know from 1 Corinthians 2, 3, that his confession can only come through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit allows this. He powers this to happen. The confession here is that all will take, <coughs> that all will take will not be about salvation at this point, but instead it'll be all people will acknowledge who Christ is. So just because they're saying this, this confession is being made, is not saying that everyone's saying it 
is a believer. What it's saying is that the entire world, the entire, all of creation, sorry, it's more than the world, all of creation, friend or foe, believer or non-believer, will, will confess who is the ultimate and sovereign authority. <clears throat> Remember, as we discussed before, that the Jewish people had used Lord as a substitute for Yahweh. Uh, in the synagogues. Now the Jewish Christians, which is what we're dealing with here to a point, where there are also Gentile Christians here, uh, have transferred that name to the resurrected Jesus. So the Lord has transitioned from our Jewish Christian friends, uh, meaning to Yahweh, has now transitioned to Jesus, the resurrected, glorified, glorified Jesus. So what Paul is saying here is that the name of God has been bestowed to Jesus, and in, Hebrew, in the Hebrew view, the name, capitalized N in name, formally puts God's power and authority on the risen Jesus. With all of this said about bestowing God's power and authority on Jesus, Paul concludes this part of the letter that with all of this, all that he has done, all he being God, is for his own glory. In conclusion to all this, many ask why verses 6 through 11 are here, and the answer seems to be it is based on Paul attempting to show that Jesus is the ultimate self-sacrificing model of love, which is what the people in the church of Philippi are called to be as well. Just as Jesus obeyed the will of the father of the church, the father, the church in Philippi should do the same. So we have the obedience side of it, right? The other side of it is for us, it is that the Christian life today, for us today, to be obedient and to, to, to self-sacrificially love one another, no matter who that other may be. One other element we must digest is that there will be suffering involved along the way with, with our walk with Christ. Christ humbled himself and suffered on a cross. We too should humble ourselves and expect to understand that there will be suffering for us as well. And it's something that but we also rejoice knowing that why we are suffering is 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 because of our love for God and our love for our community and our love for each other, and that's that's going to lead to some suffering, but it's ultimately going to lead to to joy. Uh, finally, as bearers of God's image, we are not just to imitate God by our actions, but it must be our mindset. It's not just doing an activity; it is the way we live, it is the way we process the world around us. This mindset, of course, being the mind of Christ, which is developed in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it, to where in our attitudes and relationships we project God's image in our community and hopefully to all of humanity. All right, we made it. Next time is chapter two. I was really thinking we well, actually no, we're in chapter two. We're going to continue chapter two and start in verse 12. And gee whiz, we probably won't make it to verse 30, but maybe we'll, we'll do a lot of it along the way. It just kind of really depends on time and everything with the holidays of where we are with everything. But anyways, hope everyone has a good rest of their week. Thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.